This week on the Hammond High podcast, Bridget Galton talks to journalist and broadcaster Liz Thompson. A Muswell Hill resident, Liz is a biographer of the folk singer Joan Baez, and next year will be releasing a newly edited edition of No Direction Home, The Life and Music of Bob Dylan by the late Robert Shelton. Here is Liz Thompson. So we're talking to a journalist and author, Liz Thompson, who has got a, a new book coming out in October on um, uh, Joan Baez. Now, have I pronounced that right? We need to start that if we're going to talk about her. Baez? I always say Joan Baez. That's broadly what she but, said, pronounced in different ways in different countries. Um, but that, yeah, that's what most people would say. I mean, some people say Joan Baez, but I think, no, I think Joan Baez is but, I, but that will give you a clue as to Liz's great passion, which is which is folk music, um, and and we will come on to this because we're going to talk about the fact that you've you've founded a charity and also a um, a kind of a well a music and arts festival in Greenwich Village as well, which has had one incarnation so far, hasn't it? So it's had two actually. It's had two. Oh, two. Twenty nineteen, and this would have been its third. And uh, we will do the village some- trip. The Village Trip, it's called, yes. And it's a celebration of um, Greenwich Village, whereas one Greenwich Village, which is downtown New York, I didn't know until I went to Manhattan the first time. Like, we all probably remember that um, Petula Clark song, Downtown, Where All the Lights Are Bright. Yeah. Actually, they're not downtown because it's kind of red brick and, and lower rise and less neon, but that's downtown. And uh, one wit said, um, uh, Greenwich Village, where everything began except prohibition. And that's kind of right. <laughs> You know, well, Max Bodenheim called it the Coney Island in the mind. Uh, and I've been privileged to be going there, first of all, in my day job in the 90s. For, so I was visiting for a long time, um, sort of had to sort of construct my sort of trip so that I could could follow my passions, which is sort of many of which have kind of begun in the village when New York and the village seemed a long way away, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s before cheap flights or the 70s especially before cheap flights. Um, so we've had we've had two incarnations. The first one, the main event, the first one was headlined by Suzanne Vega, um, and the second by uh, Steve Earle, whose son has just tragically died this week, I see. Um, and obviously, we kind of paused this one quite early because it was fairly clear we probably won't get be able to go ahead. Um, but so it started with the idea of doing a one-off music festival in Washington Square Park, Washington Square, Henry James, and many others, and then it evolved into a much larger arts festival such as we would know in Britain, but which the Americans who have lots of festivals, but they tend to be out in the countryside, often music, um, don't have quite as much. So it's a celebration of all things Greenwich Village. And there is so much that began there. You know, we'll probably come on to that later on. But huge yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, why don't we start with your own um, passion for folk music? Now, I, I, from your introduction to the book, I know that it was your sister, via your sister, that you first listened to a Joan Baez uh, record, but, but did, did your passion for folk start before that? No, because I was, so this is sort of 60, well, I think in about 66, my sister who's uh, older than I am, she doesn't admit that, but anyway, she won't be hearing this right now. Um, she went to Spain on her first holiday, she was working then, and she bought me like a sort of half-size guitar, which I sort of loved, I already had a toy banjo. Um, which I desperately wanted. I remember having seen it in the shop. Um, and then, you know, what her, her Spanish boss came home one Christmas, about 68, I think, and when he returned, he sent me 
from El Corte Inglés, Barcelona, he sent me this beautiful blonde Spanish guitar, proper guitar, which I had to learn to play. Uh, and there wasn't so much stuff around, you know, now there's tons of stuff online, of course, and, you know, it's much easier to find easy kind of ways to play guitar. Um, and someone showed me, a neighbor showed me about three or four chords, you know, three chords of the truth that the playing goes. Um, and I was already learning piano by then, had been for a few years. So I kind of, you know, I had a reasonable ear and I sort of knew how music worked vaguely. So um, I was kind of riffling through Maureen's record collection and I found this Joan Byers volume two. I had no idea who she was. But on the back, you know, this youngish woman with her arms folded, black and white cover. And on the back, she was playing a Spanish guitar. So I thought, well, this is, you know, okay, okay. So I put it on the old radiogram that I'd inherited in my bedroom. Um, and listen, and some of the songs were familiar, things like Banks of the Ohio and Plays Either More um, and Barbara Allen from, you know, we're, you'll probably remember this too, from Singing Together. Do you remember that? that BBC song yes. that I think Jarvis Cocker loves as well. So there was stuff that I kind of knew and that was fairly easy and there were a few things that were too difficult because they had too many chords, uh, which, but by the end of the summer, you know, I sort of fumbled my way through. So by the time I went to high school, which is my first year of secondary school, um, I had a sort of small repertoire and, and, and she was sort of, so if so buyers, I mean, Maureen has absolutely no record of, my sister has no record, recollection of whatever, of buying the LP, um, which perhaps given to her in Spain, uh, I don't know, it was an old American mm. pressing. Um, but that, you know, then at secondary school in the library, I found two other records, so more stuff to learn. And then that led me to, um, sort of through to Dylan and what I would come to know as the sort of New York folk revival. Um, and some of the, you know, all those songs, many of them were familiar from kind of what we probably then called the light program, I guess, because if you remember in those days, you're a bit young, I think, but we had, I think three TV programs, or two, was it two channels in the 60s? Uh, mm. In the 70s, I guess. And, you know, it's not so many radio stations. So you all kind of sat around and listened to stuff together. So some of it was familiar, which made it easier to learn. And then I, it sent me exploring. And I suppose um, originally buyers, who my sister was not particularly interested in. So it's, it was an anomaly. Um, you know, originally it was just a means of kind of learning songs. And then at some point I really thought, Wow, she's got a fantastic voice. It was an album called Joan Baez Volume 5 with a classical aria called Bachianas Priscillieras by Via Lobos that I thought, wow, that's just amazing. That I could never, that I never attempted to learn because it goes right up to, to um, very high play. Um, and then, you know, I got really interested in, in the whole period and I realised in those pre, in those analogue days um, through books and sort of sleeve notes and so on, that she'd been present at a lot of kind of really important sort of social, political gatherings. So she became a sort of Venn diagram through which I explored what was then obviously very recent American history, music and sort of social politics. So she led me to to um, Dylan, Bob Dylan and Judy Collins and Woody Guthrie and Pete, you know, a whole, I just, everything I listened to led me somewhere else. Uh, and also to the, my beginnings of looking into that whole era, which was, of course, Martin Luther King was not, was 10 years dead, the civil rights movement, you know, past that kind of 60s peak, although as we see, it's still kind of important, more important than ever, perhaps now. Um, so she led me in kind of lots of, you know, lots of interesting directions um, and stayed with me, but it was a bizarre thing for me to be doing to get it, for getting into this music. Um, because, of course, my generation screamed for Donny Osmond and David. Yes, and a bit exactly. Later. And I like, 
I like the fact that, you know, they're all getting into glam rock and you're taking yourself off at the age of 14 to the Rainbow, which yes. I think it was in fin Finsbury Park, isn't it? Right. Yes, my mother was appalled because you know, she, she, my dad had known it during the war, you know, the war was a fairly sleazy cinema. And, uh, you had to go with, with your mum, didn't you? Not to the gig. Uh, on your own. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, Christmas uh, 1971. Um, and they they loved it. I mean, they liked her voice. They probably heard rather too much of her down the years. Actually, what they didn't like hearing particularly was Dylan. They were reasonably happy to hear Dylan. Um, so we went. It was a fantastic concert. And I thought that would be the only time I'd see her and the only time briefly that I'd meet her. Um, but of course, that turned out not to be the case. And in terms of, um, you know, you, ha you have... Um... Well, we'll come on to this as well. You have uh, worked on a book about Bob Dylan. But um, in terms of Joan Byers, she, she, I think, do you feel like she's been a little bit overlooked as he's gone on? Because she was the one who actually championed his career and made sure that he got his first breaks rather than anything the other way around, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean certainly in, in the 70s when I was first listening to her, you know, in no one really, who, what, you know, no one really of my generation knew she, who she was. They knew a bit after she had a hit record with the night they drove old Dixie down, which was now slightly controversial, perhaps very controversial. Um, and people knew about Dylan, although again, I wasn't the generation for Dylan. My generation got into Dylan in about 1975, 76 with Desire, and then of course in 78 he came to um, the UK for the first time in a long time. But she was crucial. I mean, she was, um, you know, she had her face on the cover of Time magazine when Dylan was still scuffling for dimes in, in Greenwich Village clubs where he you know, he'd hitchhiked into the village from, well, he claims he'd hitchhiked, there are lots of other stories, um, to Greenwich Village from um, um, Minneapolis where he was a, a student for five minutes. Um, so she was already established. She, she'd come up in, in Boston in sort of late 58, 59, 60, um, made her sort of unannounced debut at the 1959 Newport Folk Festival. She was an instant star. Um, Robert Shelton of the New York Times talked about her achingly pure soprano. So she had a record contract before, you know, before Dylan, anyone had even heard of Dylan. Um, so when she began singing his songs, which she did, um, in 1962, uh, 63, they featured first on two live albums recorded in the American South during the years of segregation. Um, and then she introduced him at the 1963 Newport Folk Festival. And, you know, Shelton, who, Robert Shelton, who was a friend and mentor to me, um, who'd already written the famous review that sort of launched Dylan's career and got him a record contract. You know, he says about that 1963 appearance with Baez, that uh, he arrived, Dylan arrived at Newport, a conversation piece and left a star. And that is kind of true. So the Dylan people, the Dylan, you know, the real, real hard Dylan nuts have been very reluctant for years to admit that she, you know, was a crucial piece in, in Dylan's rise. That's not to say he wouldn't have made it without her. Um, and she would never say that either. But she did give him, you know, a jet propelled start because she, she brought him, uh, on her 1963 tour, you know, so he had a he had an audience of um, it's about 12,000 at Forest Hills and about 20,000 at the Hollywood Bowl, or maybe it's the other way around. I can never remember. So he he was given this kind of audience. Um, yeah, I, I love the I, I love the idea of the Joan Baez fans who turned up to hear her and 
God, she keeps making us listen to this Dylan guy. Mark, come back on and do your own song, Joan. <laughs> soprano. Um, and then Dylan, I mean, you know, must have, you know, I don't know how would I reacted to Dylan in those days. I don't know. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people. I mean, I remember Judy Collins, is always, you know, was just slightly behind Byers, came into the village from Denver. Um, she heard Dylan very early on as well and sort of thought, who is this guy? He's just a kind of Woody Guthrie wannabe. He's never going to make it. He's never going to make a living. So, you know, she spotted something in him um, and recognised very early on that the songs were, as she put it more recently, the arsenal for the 1960s protest movement, which Dylan himself was never really a part of. He did write the songs. But yeah, so there was so it was an extraordinary... Um, period from about sort of 63 to early 60 there was a bit of a tour um and then of course she came to britain where he was incredibly rude to her he was a star by then um but she did you know whatever people say and he's since dylan has since said took him a very long time but he did say um that she was like a siren from some greek island you know, you had to and but in fact it was her voice as much as Woody guthrie's that sort of drew him to new york uh, yeah. And he said he never mastered her guitar techniques. So <laughs> and were they an item? They were. I mean, I think they were, they were an item for much less time. I mean, she said for about three months. Uh, you know, right. I assume that's what she says. It's, it's baby shoe. Yes, they did have a, uh, an affair. And I think it was, you know, the fans at the time, I guess, you know, I was too young for this, obviously saw it as, you know, wow, well, I think I'm married. The kids and uh, he went to her home on the West Coast. She moved back to California quite quickly in the early 60s. And he was there uh, at times um, that she wanted a piano and tried to get him to look after himself a bit more, you know, and be healthier. Um, I mean, she wasn't, she's never been one for the kind of the drinks and certainly not the, which Dylan obviously was, cheap as you know, he writes about. So he wrote quite a lot of songs with her. And what, what, what which um, songs do you think she were partially about her that, that Dylan wrote? Well, it's, you know, she belongs to me. You know, he talks about she's an artist. Uh, she don't look back. She wears an Egyptian ring that sparkles before. You know, she did have an Egyptian style ring. And then there's a very famous song called Visions of Johanna, um, high 60s Dylan song written after the 65 tour, um, which among other images includes reference to the farewell kiss to me. And she made a very very famous film shot actually captured for posterity when she kisses him on the head in his room in the Savoy Hotel and she walks out of his life for basically 10 years until they get together on the body of Thunder Tour. Although she was a big star by 65 in, in the States and, and probably had played in, in Europe, she'd never played in London. She had an Albert Hall gig the week after his. And she kind of assumed that um, in coming to, you know, he invited her to come to London. They'd done all, she'd given him the platform. They'd done all these concerts together in the States. He invited her to London. Um, and she assumed, you know, she said quite clearly, I assumed he would return the favour and um, invite me on stage, which would have given me a leg up, she said, before my first tour. And of course, he didn't. He probably had no intention of doing so. So it's hard to imagine that her... First London appearance was not overshadowed by this um, mm. sadness, but of course, you know she's been she's been back ever since, and has always been a great success here. Although, you know, for much of the time uh, in the second half of her career, she was much more success, successful in France and Italy, and Spain, and Germany than she was here. That was an audience that stayed very loyal to her. 
yeah i think the other thing that comes to somebody who's less much less um, initiated to you the one of the things that comes over about her is how consistent she's been on her her politics it is you say it was, it's totally interweaved with with her music it wasn't something that she tried on and then put back down again and she's you know she even met her husband when she was in jail didn't she <laughs> she was arrested and and she for a month and she came, came out came out with a with a husband <laughs> um, i think even at sort of 12 or 13 14 i think that was something you know that sort of spoke to me you know, there was something I admired in her as a kind of figure of, of kind of obvious, you know, as a voice. And then I realized she'd done all this fascinating political stuff and had been very committed. And somehow, even though I didn't have much context for what she'd been doing when I was 12 or 13, you know, I came to understand it, obviously. Um, you know, I recognized that she was very brave and she has been consistent. And of course, she's been accused of being communist. You know, when she fought for the boat people, the Vietnamese boat people in the late 70s, Ronald Reagan said, well, I'm glad Miss Byers has finally seen the light. You know, I she was armed with Pinko before and now she's kind of sensible. Uh, but she was never a communist. I, mean, she, I think she doesn't. She endorsed Obama and she endorsed Sanders for his candidacy. Um, but, you know, she's not aligned with any political party. She's, you know, she says, I'm a non-violent activist. You know, she's, she's against the idea that, you know, you kill people and that you solve, yeah. quote unquote, solve problems by, by fighting wars. When she toured to the South, she would, she would play these black colleges. Now, again, that yeah. sort of, doing you know for somebody who's trying to build a career um that might not have been the best but she had to follow her conscience didn't she on that no it wasn't i think she was no she was never interested in just being an entertainer yeah. um and you know she saw Martin. interestingly she saw and heard martin at a, at a quaker quaker you know uh, society friends type uh, uh youth conference um when she was just a teenager and then of course 10 years Later, he's gone, but by that time they've had a friendship and she's appeared with him at the March on Washington. So she, I think she, that was the moment when she heard King speak. He was then a very young preacher, um, uh, you know, after the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, the fame where it all starts with Rosa Parks. So he was known. So when she heard him speak, she said that was the moment he was saying all the things that I sort of felt but couldn't yet articulate. Uh, and she's, you know, I've seen her talk about that meeting and you know, she still cries when she talks about it. it was such an emotive experience and then of course in not very many years from from then she's she's with him in the south and you know she specified she picked a manager who um worked with lots of the blacklisted artists who included pete siegel this is the kind of mccarthy the end of the mccarthy era too of course and also he, manny manny greenhill was his name he also worked with a lot of black musicians from the south brought them up into so the city you know into as the folk revival was happening in the states he brought a lot of these black bluesmen up to, to play in the clubs and he would have to kind of get them all sorts of documentation so she picked this manager rather than the guy who dylan would pick who she could have gone with um and when she when it came to tour of the south um she specified that the contracts had to say that the audience would not be segregated, they would be on, and it was structured so that she gave concerts on black campuses, so that the white people who wished to see her had to come onto the black campus. And once they were in the concert hall, 
the, the audiences were not segregated. And, you know, we, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, we might have, you know, when, when life was a bit nicer, we might have thought, oh, well, that's not really a big deal. But actually, when we look at America today, almost literally, you know, what's gone on in the last few weeks, and see how nasty it is still, you know, when everyone thought those battles had been largely won, Imagine how dangerous that must have been in 61, 62, 63. You know, Birmingham, 1963 was the summer of the Great yeah. Birmingham Campaign, um, you know, which saw four little children blown up. You know, they were, they were bloody years, I mean, really terrible bombings and shootings. Um, also, of course, 63 was the year of the Great March on Washington when King stood on the Lincoln Memorial and gave his great I Have a Dream speech, and Bias was there, as was Dylan, in fact. Um, you know, so there was that... It was that great, um, there was that, well, that hope of the 1960s, which, you know, lasted for a long time and, and all those movements. I think what, what again, it's, I mean, the levels I could never have understood or explained then was the way that folk music, in its broadest sense, you know, came, came together with some social action. And, you know, so many of those people, I mean, there were other, you know, Pete Seeger was the great example that inspired her, but Sir Harry Belafonte, who was, somewhat more commercial, but also a great fighter for social justice. Um, a black entertainer, mm. of course, um, playing in Las Vegas, but actually not allowed to stay in nice hotels, even though he was a superstar. Yeah. So there was all that sort of musical activism, um, the music and the activism which came together, which absolutely fitted her perfectly. That was what she was, you know, that was what she was cut out for. And that's always what she's wanted to do. Um, mm. And it, of course, the last gasp of the 60s, Woodstock, summer 1969, and she plays it pregnant. I'm, I'm interested as well, because I was in utero that summer as well. I, got, I was born the last gasp of the 60s. But um, I think, you know, she, she's, she was obvious, was she obvious that she was going to be on the bill there? Yes, it probably was. I mean, she was a huge, you know, you have to think, at that point, she was a, by the late 60s, she was a huge star. And although um, the kind of opposition to the, to the Vietnam War didn't become sort of widely accepted amongst the older kind of less radical generation till really into the 70s when you know, the kind of death toll began to mount and Nixon, you know, McGovern was challenging Nixon and so on. Um, you know, by that time she and she and had married David Harris, who was the leader of the kind of resistance movement. Um, who she met in jail. She was, you know, she, that's right. She'd been, and she was in jail. So she, she was in jail because she'd been helping draft resistance. You know, she, wasn't about, she wasn't advocating that people run away to Canada. She was advocating real resistance, you know, passive non-violence resistance, which of course has been what the um, civil rights movement, the black civil rights, rights movement had been based on. So she'd gone to jail for, for aiding and abetting as it was said, draft resistance. Uh, <clears throat> by the time of Woodstock, he, they were married and he was in jail. Um, but she still used the occasion. I mean, there was 400,000 people, you know, and it was dawn was about to break on the Askers farm and everyone was stoned, I guess, but she sang about and talked about organizing and about her husband in prison. So she didn't let that moment go. You know, she said, just recently talking about the 50 years, you know, last year, that she was ungracious, but she still, she said, the revolution went on for me, uh, even at Woodstock. And she was a big star. And there was a, some interesting surveys which showed just how influential a person she was, particularly to women, obviously, but even to men, you know, she was a very influential figure of that period. And also, and as you said earlier, she, she um, so, you know, you think of some of the other female stars from that era, but she, she didn't indulge in, in the sort of drug and drink scene 
No, she didn't. I mean, I know for a fact she's not a drinker, and she, I think she's probably never, maybe she's had the odd puff, um, but she's certainly never done drugs. I mean, that just wasn't her her scene for for whatever reason. I mean, although she was around a lot of people, I mean, including Dylan in the 60s, who of course were into all that, and that must have been partly what made life difficult for her. I mean, since she was square, and she's, you know, so, you know, she always laughs about the fact that she mightn't. Janice Joplin to have a cup of tea in her trailer at Woodstock, and of course, you know, what Janice Joplin had in her handbag was a bottle of sudden comfort. <laughs> and, you know, Janice Joplin's life ended very tragically. In 95, her manager took her back to Greenwich Village um, for four sessions at a very celebrated club, now tragically gone called The Bottom Line. Uh, and there was, I was sent out for Mojo, freelance gig, to report on the first two. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I'd never been to the village. I'd been to the West Coast. Never been to New York, West Coast. Um, so there she was with Janice Ian and Mary Black and Mary Ted Carpenter and the McGarrigals. Um, and I think we flew in on the afternoon of two nights. We flew in on the first uh, day of the first concerts. And then I went to the rehearsal the second day. And it was kind of, uh, you know, it was, fantastic. it was fantastic to be there because she was meeting Janice Ian turned up and they'd never, they played together, but, you know, they hadn't done much before. So it was kind of putting stuff together and working on the piano part and the guitar fill and then Mary Black and they were trying to work out what they would sing with the Irish, so an entirely new song, sitting on the floor, learning it. So it was, it was amazing. I just, it was an extraordinary experience. And the four concerts were extra, extraordinarily successful. Um, a lot of coverage, through the New York Times, and there was a live album. Mm. Um, and that really began in 1995, her renaissance, and her voice then was still fantastic. Actually, it's still, it is still a beautiful voice, I and mean, now she sounds like the wise, the wise woman. I mean, um, you know, the voice that I so aspire to have and would still give several of my eye teeth to, to possess. To in, you know, in the kind of high soprano I could never have done, and actually I couldn't do the much lower, richer voice she has now, um, mm. which I think... You know, and she said, uh, we talked about, we talked about the late voice and she said, well, you know, she made an album in 2008 and then there was a big gap. And she said, well, I, I didn't really like it either, you know, and so I had to come to terms with it, um, which she did. Um, and you know, then changed the keys of songs, which was, you know, she was, she should have done that sooner, I think. But anyway, that's what she did eventually. And then she made this final album, Whistle Down the Wind. Um, in, you know, just as she was kind of touring for the last time. And I think actually the voice in that is beautiful. I mean, it's weathered, mm. treated with what the Spaniards in their flamenco terms would call duende, so soul. And I think when you, when you think, we, when you think of some other female singers who you, I admire like Patti Smith or, or, or Chrissy Hind, or they're, they're also women who've kind of done it their own way and exactly, exactly. refused to wear, um, you know, figure hugging, whatever, you know, I think in a sense you need to have an individual who's ploughing their own furrow and even when there aren't many people listening. <laughs> Yeah, you absolutely do. And, and she and Patty have done stuff together recently. And I, I think I saw, I saw Joan and Chrissy Hyde on one of the anti-landmine gigs in Edinburgh. I think all those, you know, all those sort of feisty women. And for, you know, although obviously the kind of pop women we had um, the 60s in Britain, I mean, not they weren't folkies, they were doing different things. But I think for, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of, in terms of influence, I mean, you know, I think 
anyone who came after her, you know, any woman who picked up a guitar um, after about 1961 was inevitably compared to her and inevitably influenced by her. And, you know, I think that whatever people say, and I've had lots of discussions with arguments with people about this, without bias, there would have been no Joni Mitchell, I think. And weaving in and out of our conversation has been obviously Bob Dylan. You also got to work on a book by the late Robert Shelton, who, as you said, was your mentor, which is yeah. his book on his book on Dylan, No Direction Home. What, what did you... What have you done? What do you? What was your work involved with that book? Well, just to put this in context slightly, we talked. I think when I did the original kind of reshaping, I met Shelton. You know, I saw Dylan live for the first time in 1978. I was just kind of blown away because then he was magnificent. You know, I was caught in a blackbush, and that led me to go to some conference on where I met Shelton, whose name I knew. I didn't realise he'd been living in England for the last in London for the last. Um, Decade then, it was 1979, um, and he'd left, um, he'd been on the New York Times where he, he'd chronicled the New York folk revival, Dylan and Byers, all of them, and much beyond actually, he's the father of rock journalism because there was only the, no Rolling Stone yet in the early 60s. Um, so he'd come over to finish his Dylan book, um, which by the time I met him was at least a decade overdue. And <laughs> after, so we met and he, he kind of, um, you know, we, kept in touch and then eventually I you know after we met a few times I said well what about you what about your famous book on Dylan when's it coming out so said, oh it's, you know, it's with my publisher um so a couple more months passed and then he admitted that he'd sent it to his publisher in at the sort of end of 1978 at the end of Dylan's magnificent tour and he'd really not heard anything from us in New York not heard anything so I said I wasn't yet in publishing but I said isn't that kind of odd? You know shouldn't you have this is the days of snail mail remember not internet you know shouldn't they at least said they they've got it. So he said, well, yeah, I know they've got it, but I haven't, you know, I don't think they like it. And it was hugely detailed. It was hugely long. Um, and indeed they didn't like it. So he then began to, there were several battles to get the book published. So it did eventually come out in 1986. Um, and in order to accommodate what was then a vast book, because he looked into, you know, so it detailed all Dylan's time in the village and buyers and, you know, and Dylan goes to Woodstock to live. So there's huge, you know, for example, there's huge, diversion about Woodstock as an old arts colony, which is what it was, you know, and then, there, then Dylan's into sort of alchemy for design, there's a huge, you know, going off into alchemy and all the rest of it, and the white goddess and Robert Graves and mythology, so it became a very long book, and then he had to update it to try and bring it up to date, and in order to sort of accommodate it physically, and it had to be cut, so it was kind of thinned out, and it had this late coda, which is very unsatisfactory, and so when it came out in 1986, it was, as Shelton said, quote unquote, abridged over troubled waters. And it came out at a very low period in Dylan's career. I mean, he was not, no one was interested. Really. I mean, he had the same kind of dip in his career that Byers had at almost the same time. Um, so he, and he always intended to revisit it. And then he died um, quite suddenly in the mid 90s. Um, and, you know, I still had the manuscript and I was in touch with his family. So. I said, what about redoing this for Dylan's 70th and was publishing the book that Shelton had wanted to publish. So we agreed that we'd do it and found a publisher and I put back, I reshaped the book so that it then resembled, was pretty faithful to the book that he'd wanted to publish in 1978-79 when I met him. So it's, it's a kind of book that takes Dylan from 1941, his birth, to basically backstage at Black Bush and Earl's Court in, in um, 1978-79. 
as a short coat or something, all the other sh stuff was taken off. So it's a very specific period. Uh, and I put back all the kind of vast interview material about Dylan and you know, the pair. He was, Shelton was the only person to interview Dylan's parents, the only person. So there's a long period. A long the Zimmermans. Time. The Zimmermans, yeah, A, B, T. And to see the childhood, to see the home, we, we, what shaped him, which of course is very different. They were, you know, they didn't quite understand why their boy had rebelled so to the extent that he had. And he interviewed all his friends in, in um, at the University of Minnesota, who of course was spread out by then, and then all the stuff about New York. It's incredibly evocative about the Greenwich Village period, which is where I got my festival idea of doing it actually. So I reshaped the book and it came out at 244,000 words, twice as long probably as it uh, which is hefty. Um, and one of the problems was, you know, when it came out, I said, gee, you know, the type's very small, could you have made it a bit bigger, you know? Anyway, the, 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 so the kind of the urtext edition, if you like, was, was out there with some nice illustrations. So his intentions have been honoured, uh, but it was expensive to translate. So Dylan's going to be 80 next year, just after Byers is 80. So um, I talked with the same publisher about doing it, and they said, can you, um, what would be really good is if we had a book that we could sell to more international markets, and that younger people coming to Dylan and you would buy, um, and can you get it down to 100,000 words? And I thought, oh my God, that's, you know, that's, huge cut massive cut so i was kind of intimidated i started it in the states um this january and i could see the obvious cuts first of all so dylan's won the nobel prize so the arguments about whether dylan is a poet whether he's a great writer that ship has sailed i think you, know, you can prove it or not um you know you can think he deserves a nobel or not but, but, but you know the argument sort of won so i took out the great chapter on doing the academics which i've been tempted to cut last time because it's very heavy and sort of apologetic and i took out each of the sort of album the album by album critiques which was sort of somewhat pedestrian and again you know we've moved on a bit and i took out some of the kind of pointiest detail the kind of you know there was a lot of really 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 heavy detail about minneapolis and so on Amazingly, I, I got it down, I got it down, I got it in the ballpark, I got it down to about 105,000 words. So the book is absolutely faith. I mean, I hope Shelton, who was a friend and mentor to me, and the reason in a way that I did all these things that I've done, instead of, you know, I might have gone on to a sensible career in teaching and be retired with a pension by now. Um, you know, he was the, you know, I met him because I was interested in all this, and then meeting him, you know, push me in other directions. So I hope he'll feel it's done again with the, his, his nephews, the executive now, his sister's life. Um, I'm hoping that he'll feel it's faithful and that it will enable um, a new generation of people who know Dylan's work, not about him, to appreciate what it's about. It's still, there's still a lot of context about the village, and about Woodstock, and about Minneapolis, and the kind of interview. The really key stuff is, is all still there. Shelton's fortunes have been, you know, he's been, people have said he was a Dylan apologist, which he wasn't, he just didn't want to kind of, he didn't want to sell off the relics of the friend, was what he used to say, and that everything was there if you could break the code, which I think is probably true. But he was a wit, he's the only person who was there with whom Dylan worked, it's not authorised, but he, you know, he knew Dylan, they were friends, they knocked around Greenwich Village together, um, Shelton was on his plane on the 1966 tour for a couple of legs, the famous tour that ended with the when he went electric and which was ended by the motorcycle crash. Um, so they, and they kept, they kept in touch. I mean, they, 
know, Shelton was backstage at dinner with him after us crawled in 78. So he's the only, whatever all these other people say, he's the only real witness. And I think it's a crucial, not just about Dylan, that the whole, I mean, Dylan obviously is, you know, what Dylan has given us, whatever you think of the last few albums, what he gave us in the 60s is brilliant. And uh, he's an incredibly important figure musically. And he was part of, as with Byers, they were both part of something bigger. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they were part of a scene in Greenwich Village, which was a, a continuing. But there is an important book. I, I hope, I'm expecting a sort of crock of shit to be poured on me in March when it comes out, because there'll be people who, you know, various reasons won't like it. Um, but it's been done with the best of intentions to introduce more of Dylan's yeah. life and Shelton, who was the father of journalism to a generation that dismisses him, may not know him, yeah. or dismisses him too readily. And I suppose the coming back full circle to talk about the village trip, this this festival, um, that's also to perhaps there might be some um, young New Yorkers or Americans who you know, you're celebrating the history and heritage of Greenwich Village and all these, um, as you say, the, the, the yeah. ghosts of the songwriters and the protests. But, you know, in a way, uh, you want to keep that sort of spirit going, if you like, through the festival. You, you're going to do it online this year, I understand. Do a few things online. And we, I had came back with fantastic plans on February the 27th. And I should have been back and forth about four times since. I'm grounded. I said, I want to be in New York. Uh, and the BBC reported from the village, actually, for a while, which made it very poignant in Washington art. But, you know, when I, when I first went to the village um, in 95, you know, doing my day job reporting the publishing trade, um, you know, I just, I knew the music stuff. And then I, as I've stayed there, you know, almost every year since running around town doing publishing interviews during the day for a business magazine and then staying at this wonderful hotel and becoming, making friends and becoming friends with family, um, I got to know, I realized there was this fantastic other history, which I knew, you know, I knew about the jazz, I knew about the music. But, you know, I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, I mean, obviously everyone knows the Henry James novel, Washington Square, people know about it. Um, but, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt lived on Washington Square Park uh, after she left the White House, and the her apartment was opposite that where John uh, Sebastian, the loving spoonful, uh, grew up. Eugene O'Neill was there. Um, you know, the Iceman Cometh was inspired by a bar nicknamed the Hellhole, uh, and that was where Dorothy Day, Catholic and communist, drank Eugene O'Neill under the table. You know, the White House... <laughs> No feet. <laughs> he was sober in our old age, I think, and of course it was a great anti-war campaign and lived on for a long life. And I think it's about to be canonized actually. Um, the White Horse Tavern, which was a, uh, you know, is this supposedly the, the tavern of the Mary Hopkins song, you know, once upon a time there was a tavern. You know, it was a longshoreman's bar, but that's where Dylan Thomas took his last drink. Uh, it's where the Clancy brothers in the 50s and 60s in their Aaron knit sweaters sang all those amazing songs, including the rebel songs where Dylan and Shelton went to drink and Judy Collins. Um, you know, Bella Abzug, um, you know, you've seen that series, Mrs. America. She was down there, you know, but 50 years before that, Frances Perkins was the first woman to make a, a, have a tilt at the presidency. Um, you know, the, the streets, Bleecker Street and McDougal Street, which are famous for music. You know, there was, in, you know, in the early 20th century, there was the Liberal Club and the Heterodoxy Clubs, very um, uh, un-PC. There were also known as fairy clubs, which were placed gay clubs. And Walt Whitman used to come in from Brooklyn and go, mostly 
in the late 19th century and into the 20th, mostly they went on with their business untroubled. Occasionally there'd be there'd be a raid, but you know, so decades before Stonewall, um, you know, gay behavior is tolerated in the village. You know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Edward Albee saw that graffiti on the men's room in a club called the Village Gate. Um, <laughs> you know, Emma Lazarus, is the new colossus, you know, give to me your tired and your poor, which of course is you know, not what America stands for right now, um, on the Statue of Liberty. She, she was around there. You know, the first American Steinway pianos were built in a loft in what's now the West Village. I mean, the, the village is just full of, you know, and then of course there's all the artists, there's Rothko, there's um, Jackson Pollock, I mean, endless, Edward um, Hopper, mm. of course. You know, Roosevelt was, um, uh, um, well, Robeson was, was down there, and the Village Vanguard, which was people think of as a jazz club. I mean, the Weavers and Pete Seeger sang there, you know, Harry, Bel Harry Belafonte stand, sang there. Uh, and of course, you know, you've got people like Woody Allen doing stand-up comedy um, in the 60s in the clubs of McDougal Street. And so uh, just so much happened. Hendrix, 50 years ago, almost as we speak, I mean, it's 50 years since he died next week, I think, isn't it? You know, built the Electric Lady Studios, which is still there and still much in use, the only real studio in New York now. You know, all this stuff was going on down there. So it's not just, it's not, you know, it's not just this particular period I'm interested in. The hotel, which was where, you know, those people who know Diamonds and Rust, she sings about that crummy hotel over Washington Square. Uh, and it was the Hotel Earl in those days. It's now the Washington Square Hotel run by a family who've become my great friends down the years of the mom and pop business. And they're my partners in the project. They've allowed me to, you know, I think they thought they'd lose, I'd lose my shirt. Um, and they said, okay, we'll come aboard and as part of the deal, you can stay. In fact, now I stay with the mom, who's an amazing, you know, rebellious 93-year-old who still paints on Washington Square West in a dormant apartment. You know, I'm living this kind of life. But, you know, in the Earl, as it was, John Phillips on a cold winter's day in 1965 wrote California Dreaming. Roger McGuinn wrote Chestnut Mare in Room 707. Um, uh, who, uh, in more recent times, Nora Jones waited tables. It was then the Washington Square Hotel, of course. You know, endless, endless people have stayed. Uh, even War stayed at the hotel. You know, Dylan Thomas stayed. Uh, Tennessee Williams stayed at the hotel. Um, Patricia Highsmith used it for afternoon trysts, even though she lived a few streets away in the village. You know, there's this amazing rich history in the village. And the sad thing is that, is that um, of course, it's become a place of high-priced real estate. And people buy yeah. into row houses, as they would call the terraces, uh, and turning them into very luxury homes. Uh, you know, and they were places that would have been torn down in the 50s. In fact, were in danger of being torn down until Jane Jacobs protected the visit from the village from, from Robert Moses' great plans to put a highway through it. Um, so there's this rich history, and you see the kind of tour groups going through, or you would in normal times, following the old umbrella, and, you know, this is Hendrix's studios, and this is where Martha Graham was, and this is... But, you know, and then they go on to do the designer shopping down in Soho, which, of course, didn't exist as an area... Uh, you know, the area existed, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't designed a shopping area back in the 50s and 60s. So there's all this, there's all this rich history in the village. And um, it always amazed me that there was no festival, because if we had the Greenwich Village equivalent in the UK, we would have had a festival celebrating all this incredible mm -hmm. history. Um, you know, because civil rights, voting rights, all sorts of, you know, huge move, birth control. Margaret said, all was all starting there, you know, in the very early 20th century before anyone else was sort of thinking about, well, you know, 
openly thinking about this stuff. So I think it's crucially important and it should be celebrated. And when I, the idea for it came from when I was doing Shelton's book first time around and he was talking about these two clubs and he said they were a mile apart and Shelton didn't drive, he had no idea of distance. And I knew the village by then. I thought, actually they were at most 500 yards apart. And then I sort of thought, it's amazing, all this stuff happened, you know, yeah. square blocks around Washington Square Park. And wouldn't it be amazing if you had a festival down there? Um, and originally you'd call, I called it bringing you all back home to Washington Square, which is the title you still use for the, for the main concert. Um, and you know, people, most of my friends thought I was crazy. Janice Ian, um, wonderful musician who likened the, who wrote at 17, very famous song, and who likened the village to sort of the Renaissance initially, um, thought it was a fantastic idea and gave me a very early endorsement. Um, and then, you know, after my father passed away, the last parent who was sort of very involved in his care in, in 2015, the last vestige of my regular job had gone, and I was actually pretty depressed. I probably should have had some help. But anyway, I kind of, after I'd lain on the sofa, kind of staring at the ceiling for a while, you know, friends said, well, you know, you've got this idea. Why don't you do a website, go out there and, and try? So I thought, well, you know, you only live once. Be ashamed to go to your grave thinking coulda, shoulda, woulda, maybe, if only. So I went out and, you know, I talked to various people. And, they, you know, I got lots of, the Americans are very welcoming. The Americans I know are generous and welcoming. And doors were opened, even in City Hall, doors opened to me. Um, there were offers of help, but I, a lot of people did say to me, well, that's ambitious. You know, <laughs> be careful, it's been tried before. Uh, and I think my friends, the Paul family at the Washington Square Hotel, I think you know, were worried for me, but I think by get, allowing me to stay free, that was what made it possible for me to do this, because it has cost me money, lots of money in other ways, of course. But gradually, gradually, um, I did it. I had to convince people. I built a, I spent a lot of time going around um, to building a sort of coalition of the willing, if you like, amongst civic groups. I got the new school on board, which is the village. It's very much in the village and very much of the village. Um, I got sort of the Washington Square Park Conservancy on board. And, you know, I got all these local people mm. I supported me, NYU eventually. Um, uh, and then I had thought, okay, I have to take a plunge here. So we did um, the first year we celebrated. I, I persuaded a guy, well, I didn't have to persuade him, he, I kind of asked, and he said, I'll do whatever you want. There's a wonderful guy who's about to be 90 called David Amram, who people will probably remember the film, The Manchurian Candidate, he wrote music for that. But he was in the village in the 40s, and he was Leonard Bernstein's first composer in residence at Lincoln Center. He was Joseph Papp's first composer in residence for Shakespeare in the Park. He's played with Woody Herman, Woody Guthrie, Dylan, he's played with everyone classical bridges and I said would you be would you do something and he said yeah I'll do whatever you want I'll do it this is a fantastic idea I've been waiting forever for someone to do this so he's now artist emeritus and he's been a fantastic ambassador so he's done stuff in most years first year he did um, we, we got three top flight musicians from the Boston Symphony um, and a, a pianist from the Boston area to do uh, his Greenwich Village portraits of three friends um, and a reading, we had someone do a reading of Kerouac because he played with Kerouac and done this very you know, experimental film with Kerouac. And we had people lining up around the block to hear this. It was incredible. And we celebrated this Vincent Millay, who's very much part of the village. Uh, we had some really cool jazz. We put together four really big jazz names who'd never played together before. And we had a concert. Um, and we celebrated Eugene O'Neill with a walk of mm. So, and then a kind of performance of various key scenes 
in the bar of the Washington Square Hotel, which he would have known because he lived around the corner. And then we had this amazing concert in the park, um, which was headlined by um, Suzanne Vega, whose career was made down there. And then we did it all again last year and Steve Earle um, headlined. Um, and we will do it again. And this year I kind of made connections with uh, a dancer who danced with Martha Graham, who of course is down there as well, as was Isadora Duncan. Um, we were going to do some dance celebration. And we were going to celebrate 100 years of suffrage. Um, yeah. We're going to have to wait to do that. So thank you to Liz for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hammond High podcast and we'll see you again next week.